The church of Jesus Christ is invincible when it is attacked from without. History consistently records that opposition and persecution unifies the church, purifies the church, and strengthens the church. And you know, it does something else. It identifies the church, the true church. In contrast to opposition without, history also verifies that the church is vulnerable to and weakened by opposition from within. The Apostle Paul, when he stopped on his last missionary journey on the beach at Ephesus to talk to the elders there, they wept as he told them that this would be the last time that they would ever see him. These were his last words to them, in other words. And he had report, he reported into them that he had preached to the Gentiles and to the Jews two things toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. And here's what he said when he left them, the most important words that you would think that he would want to say on his last time with them. He said to them, take heed to yourself, first of all, and then to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he, God, purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves among you sharing the flock. That's to be expected. But from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. That is the admonition that Paul gave to the elders of the church. To be alert to those within the church. And I'm talking about the organized church, not necessarily the church of Jesus Christ, but the church of Jesus Christ within the organized church, the visible church, has many, many, many within it who are not believers and who would cause dissension and and try to raise disciples after themselves. And it's our text this morning is an expose on, on the Trojan horses within the camp. And also, uh, it's going to be a challenge for us to examine ourselves and to look and to see at our, at our own character. The Apostle Paul said in Corinthians, to examine yourselves to see if you be in the faith. I'm assuming that you are in the faith, and I'm challenging you, I will be, to, to, to examine your character in light of the text this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look at what Nehemiah faced, the challenges from without, but more difficult, the challenges within, to bring the building of the wall to a stop. His response, Father, is so instructive to us, and I pray that as we look individually at our own lives this morning in a text that can be kind of hard-hitting. I pray, Father, that by your Spirit, you would be the one that would challenge us through your word this morning, and that you would be our teacher, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
I suspect we've all been told at one time or another, don't worry, it'll get worse before it gets better. Very much like the infamous Heartbreak Hill on the marathon, you run for about 25 miles and you've got a mile to go or however far it is, and that last mile is uphill. Nehemiah was in such a place. He had faced down the enemies from without and he had re-energized the discouraged workers within. The walls are now over halfway done. And then all of a sudden, the first words in chapter 5, there was a great outcry of the people. Things had really turned around. The opposition of the enemy from without had really backfired. The people were unified, energized, and then boom! We quit. What went wrong? Well, in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1, there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. And there were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. In verse 3, our sons and daughters are many. They were concerned about overpopulation. In verse 3, because of the famine, crop failure. Verse 4, we have borrowed money to pay the king's taxes. In verse 5, it is not in our power to redeem them. Sounds like inflation. It also sounds like today's headlines in the local newspaper, pretty much. But these were only the surface issues. Many times we don't see below the surface, and we need to. Below the surface, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. Verse 6, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. The problem was usury. What's that? Dictionary helps us. Here it is. It means exacting an exorbitant or unconscionable amount of interest on a loan. Today we would call that loan sharking. Taking advantage of somebody else's misfortune. And the somebody else in this instance was their, their extended family. In Leviticus chapter 25, there are several references there. I just want to read this one. Leviticus 25, verse 35. If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live 
with you. Very clear. They were not to take, to take usury from their brethren. It was insensitive. It was not seeking to help and to meet their needs. It was rather to use somebody in their misfortune. But below the surface, below the surface was usury, but at the root of the problem. You get to the heart of the matter. In verse 3, they were unconcerned about the needs of others. We have mortgaged our lands to buy grain, and this was from their own brethren. And a passage of scripture that we don't read a whole lot, somehow the epistle of James seems to kind of be in uh, misuse or disuse. In James chapter 2, verse 14, we read these words. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I would say it this way. Faith without transformation of one's life is stillborn. It's just words. You can say you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ all day long. But if it hasn't transformed your life, it's just words. You're kidding yourself. You're fooling yourself. When the Lord Jesus enters our life and the Holy Spirit indwells us, there is a transformation. We have become a new creature in Christ, and it's impossible not to respond. But when there's no response, it tells me that the faith is stillborn. It's just words. There was callous disregard for their brothers in crisis, and there was insensitivity toward their extended family. The, the word slavery there used in verse 5 was the accepted legal procedure for repaying debt when one was unable to pay by any other means, and it's called indenture. Again, the dictionary, indenture is a contract binding one person into the service of another for a specified time. Indenture laws were on the books in England until the 18th century. This is rather recent in terms of long-term history. They were unconcerned about the needs of others. They were insensitive toward their extended family. And bottom line, they were selfish in their attitude regarding financial gain. Each of you is exacting usury. And I also want to say by application, what attracts people to Christ is not by our trying to be like the world and mimic their values. It is the contrast in values that attracts people to Christ. I believe the distinguishing mark of an authentic Christian is that he is not self-absorbed. He is a conscious and aware and concerned about others to the glory of God. I think the bottom line, they had a temporal value system. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world. Be not conformed to this world, Paul said in its value system. 
Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and all of its desires. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Jesus put it this way, where your heart, excuse me, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Ask yourself, what's my focus? What what are my values? What, what, What do I treasure most? That tells you where your heart is. You don't need words. We don't need scripture verses. All you need to do is identify where your treasure is. That's where your heart is. I had to ask myself that question. First thing I came up with was, where's my treasure? Grandkids. That's why we're in Alaska. Sherry said something this week, you know, our calling, our ministry, by and large, right now is grandkids. They need grandpa and grandma. And, uh, you know, we could be doing something else. I could be playing golf every day where there are no mosquitoes. (laughs) But God has called us to be sacrificial in our lives. And we have responded. That's where my treasure is. It's elsewhere as well. But that is a great way to evaluate where your heart is. Where where are your treasures? If you want to, we're talking about uh, financial gain here in an unscrupulous way especially. If you want to discover the depth of someone's character, just enter into a business transaction with them. You'll find out real quick what kind of a person they are, for, for better or for worse. Here, the wall building project was in jeopardy, but I think more significantly it was the, the project that brought to the surface the lack of character, the spiritual condition of their heart. And Nehemiah confronted both, the project, building the wall, and the spiritual condition of their heart. In verse 6, we read on. I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury of his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, you will even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. And then I said to them, What you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Here, Nehemiah, as the leader, is tested. And I believe the test of a leader's mettle is his willingness to do what is right no matter how many people become displeased with him. That's a hard thing. I learned very early in ministry that my responsibility was not to make 
try to make people happy. My job was to confront them with the truth of the word of God, whether it be a, an encouraging exhortation or a warning and a challenge. I read my Bible from cover to cover every year, and right now I'm smack dab in the middle of Ezekiel. You want to have warning? About a third of the Bible in the Old Testament is where it's at. It's warning after warning after warning after warning to turn our hearts to the Savior. It says here that he was very angry. And I want to say to you, that is essential. <clears throat> I would want to ask the question, in the Church of Jesus Christ, and, and especially in America today, where is the outrage? Why aren't people angry? Why isn't there outrage at what's going on? It's because I believe our culture in general, and less specifically in the church, we have bought into the mantra of tolerance. Just let everybody be happy and do their thing. It's okay if it's immoral. It's okay if it's corrupt. It's okay if it's against the Constitution or whatever it may be. Where's the outrage? Now, especially when we're dealing with our own sin, where's the outrage? Nehemiah was angry, and that's good. Somehow in the church we've decided that anger is sinful. No, it's not. It's what you do with it that becomes sin. Be ye angry and sin not. Nehemiah, verse 7, gave serious thought. He didn't react in anger. But from his anger, he gave serious thought. He made sure he didn't just react. But once the facts were clear, he did the hard thing. And he did the right thing. He rebuked them. And he did so face to face. Verse 7 and following. He spelled it out and he received a tacit confession. We think somehow things are cared for by a mumbled, I'm sorry, but true sorrow results in changed behavior. <clears throat> Verse 10. I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please, let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their land, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property. Who does not perform this promise? Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to what they promised. In essence, Nehemiah said, I'm sorry is not good enough. And the first thing was stop the usury. Call sin what it is, sin. 
We will never face our sin until we quit excusing it and calling it what it is. And then he said, restore the land, verse 11. Now hear this. Repentance isn't repentance until one has discontinued the wrong and gone beyond an emotional response to actions of restitution. Repentance isn't complete until it goes beyond an emotion, a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of action, including restitution when necessary. That is repentance. In this instance, Nehemiah bound them to a legal contract or an oath. And he talked about shaking out his garment. And uh, May, uh, May, get this right. May you be shaken out from your house and your property. May you be destitute. You're adding this curse upon yourself if you don't do what you say. And they shake out the, the garment. And that was a very common thing, and what they did in an oath like that. And they all agreed. Amen. They put themselves into the, under this oath. And I would just say, by way of practical application, you serious about dealing with an issue, a sinful issue in your life? You truly repentant? I challenge you to go public with it. Now by that I mean a friend or whoever. Say, you know what? This has been an issue. I'm confronting it. And I want you to hold my feet to the fire. That's essentially what Nehemiah was doing. And one more thing before we move on. Verse 9 again. Should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations? In essence, Nehemiah was saying, look you guys, you're over here callously making a killing at the misfortune of your brethren. And the guys over there, Sanballat and his buddies, are saying, they're no different than we are. What's the big deal? They do the same things we do. Their values are no different than ours. And that is exactly why the church of Jesus Christ in America today is so impotent, so powerless. Our faith is often little more than fire insurance from hell. And when that is the case, I question whether the faith is really genuine. So many who call themselves Christians today in America are lacking true heart motivation. In Genesis chapter 39 verse 9, is the story of Joseph when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. She had tried over and over and over, and he just wouldn't buy into it. Finally, she grabs him. And eyeball to eyeball, Joseph says to her, I cannot do this thing and sin against the Lord. That is intrinsic motivation that comes from the Holy Spirit where there's genuine faith. He didn't say, I don't want to embarrass my parents. I don't want to defraud Potiphar. I can't do this because God has transformed my life. That is the basis of building true character. True Christian character is relationship 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 22nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Yet even their servants bore rule over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work of this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered together, were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me. And once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy upon this people. It only took 52 days to build the walls. After Nehemiah was a construction manager, he became governor for, for 12 years. And all during that time, he demonstrated incredible character. True character is not formed in the heat of the fire. It is merely exposed by the fire. When the heat is turned up, what comes out is what was already there. And here's what came out of Nehemiah. He refused the right of levy. Neither did I burden, put a burden upon the people. He refused the right of levy. He could have very well made a killing, legally, morally. Well, certainly not ethically. And he remained true to his calling. He said, I will continue the work. And he did not buy land. He didn't get diverted off onto his own stuff. He had a calling to do a job, and he stuck to it. He refused his right of levy. He remained true to his calling. And he relieved others instead. Moreover, there was at my table 150 Jews, plus those who came to us on a very regular basis. Nehemiah, at every point, radiated an aura of authenticity. He wasn't obeying a list of rules. This was coming from his heart because of the transformation that God had brought in his life. True faith. I want to, to read for you Dr. Clarence McCartney. Speaking in Pittsburgh to a group of pastors, but what he said to these pastors applies well to every one of us. The better the man, the better the preacher. When he kneels by the bed of the dying, or when he mounts the, the, the pulpit stairs, then every self-denial he has made, every Christian forbearance he has shown, every resistance to sin and temptation will come back to him to strengthen his arm and give conviction to his voice. Likewise, every evasion of duty, every indulgence of self, 
every compromise with evil, every unworthy thought, word, or deed will be there at the head of the pulpit stairs to meet the minister on Sunday morning, to take the light from his eye, the power from his blow, and the ring from his voice, and the joy from his heart. I'd like to leave you with these words. Look well to thine own house. The temptation is always to focus on the faults of the other guy. In reality, it's just a form of denial, blame-shifting, and excuse-making. The true measure of wealth is found in one's compassion portfolio, not in one's financial portfolio. Conciliation begins at the beginning. Squarely facing one's wrong or sin or whatever, head on. No rationalizing. Calling sin what it is. Sin. Correction is most effective when we go public with our commitment. Purposefully making ourselves accountable. And finally, to quote F.B. Meyer, no man suddenly becomes base. It is the little foxes that spoil the vine. Compromise always begins, a little here and a little there. A hardened heart is, becomes so gradually with the cumulative effect of little compromises here and little compromises there. I preached a sermon recently from the book of Exodus. You remember the ten plagues? Pharaoh hardened his heart. The tenth plague was the death of the firstborn in every household. Israel was getting out of Dodge. They were on their way. And they look in the rear view mirror, and what do they see? A big dust cloud, and at the bottom of it was Pharaoh and his chariots and his army coming after him. Now, wouldn't you think that Pharaoh and his people would have thought maybe it's not a good idea to go after these guys after ten plagues, and the last one being the death of the firstborn? Wouldn't you think that he, they might by now know that Jehovah God the God of Israel carried a big stick. It is a picture of the insanity that sin brings when our hard heart becomes hard. We become irrational, unthinking, and we disgust even ourselves sometimes. And that is why we need to check our character and just ask ourselves, are there areas in my life where I'm compromising? Father, thank you that you are not wishy-washy. You've made it very clear who you are as we sung this morning. I thank you, Father, that you are absolutely holy with a, no shadow of turning within you. And I thank you, Father, that you have revealed to us very clearly how you would have us to be, to reflect the person of the Lord Jesus into whose image you said you will conform us.
Lord, grant that we would be willing to allow you to do that work of conforming as we evaluate our character and seek, Father, to have your character manifested in our lives. And may, Father, our lives be not self-absorbed, egocentric and selfish. But, Father, may our underlying driving motivation be to glorify you in our lives and to live our lives unselfishly with our brothers and sisters in Christ before a watching world, because they are watching. Father, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.